Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. This episode is a bit different from what we've done before. Particularly relevant since we are in the midst of the med school application cycle, I got to chat with a few individuals who shared their perspectives regarding issues of diversity in medicine and the importance of pipeline programs. My first guest is Dr. Darren Lattimore. He is Deputy Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the Yale School of Medicine. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Well, first, I want to say thank you for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate that we're even having this conversation about why we need to diversify medicine if we're really going to truly improve the health of our communities. My name is Darren Lattimore. I'm the Deputy Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at Yale School of Medicine. Been here for about a year and three months or so. I came mainly to help develop um, a program here at Yale from medical student all the way up to faculty, where we, one, increase the number of um, students and faculty from underrepresented medicine groups, but just as important, if not more importantly, create an environment where they thrive, can remain in the institution throughout their career, and actually help lead change. Okay, that sounds great. So where were you before you came to Yale? Prior to coming to Yale, I had been at UC Davis, went to medical school at UC Davis, residency at UC Davis, and was faculty at UC Davis, where I also was the Associate Dean of Student and Resident Diversity, where I developed several different pipeline programs and oversaw pipeline programs, again, in order to help diversify medicine. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about those pipelines? First of all, what does a pipeline program really mean to you when, you know, when you're talking about medicine and efforts of diversity? So for me, a pipeline program is a program that is looking at learners. It can be high school students. It can be college students. It can be our post-baccalaureate students. But programs that are geared specifically to help students from disadvantaged backgrounds and or minority, minoritized or stigmatized with communities and to help them get the skills and quite often the, um, the encouragement and sense that they can do it mm-hmm. to actually succeed in medicine. And so can you tell me about the pipeline programs that you worked on while you were at Davis? So at Davis, we had three levels of programs. We had literally a high school program where people, where students came weekly at night. We exposed them to multiple different um, sorts of health careers, so from physician to PA to uh, emergency room tech, etc. We also, they got certified in EMT. Um, And a lot of people say, well, you know, does that really work? Does that really work? But before I left Davis, actually a student, no, two, I'm going to take that back, two students who had been in our high school program when I first started were actually sitting in our medical school. That's fantastic. So, yes, does it, am I going to get every person that I touch? Am I actually going to be able to succeed? No, but that's nothing in life. But yes, do these programs, if you start early enough and actually touch the kids enough times over time, do they actually work without question? That's one. Um, The second pipeline program that I had and that I actually developed was for college students who were economically disadvantaged. They had to show me their um, financial aid. Diversity kind of automatically kind of flowed with the poverty. 
not just at UC Davis, but also at the state school that was in the community because a lot of the students from the state school felt that they were disadvantaged purely from the institution that they were touching, that a lot of people thought that they were less than because they had not gone to a private or to the UC system. Mm -hmm. So they also were equally welcome to this pipeline program. It was over a year, and it was specifically to help get the students in the medical school and I took students literally with GPAs that the average person would say, there is no way this person is ever going to get into medical school. And I, by the time I left, had an 80% success rate of getting my students into a medical school. It may not have been UC Davis, but quite frankly, I need doctors no matter where they're trained. Right, right. And so now that you've been here at Yale, what are some of the initiatives that, that you've been working on in terms of the pipeline, both at the student and also faculty level? So at the student, the new one that we have, which is similar to what I just actually described to you, is working with our local community colleges. The main of the students, because it's so close, come from Gateway, but some also come from Housatonic. I apologize for not saying that correctly. Over the summer, will we again expose them to science, biochemistry, um, biology, writing, introduction to research. Um, and the reason is because a lot of students who come from community colleges, it's not because they're intellectually inferior. The data would suggest it's because of the economics and the instability in their houses, way more likely than their intellect. And so my goal, again, is to help people who come from marginalized situations actually get an upper hand in helping to keep on the um, pathway to being pre-med. A lot of students who come from community colleges are in a uh, semester system within a community college, and they may or may not go to a quarter system when they transfer to a four-year. And what you often will see, the data will clearly show, is that many of them, their GPA will drop. Mm -hmm. When they transfer, and that's about the time that most medical school admissions are expecting your GPA to be going up, because at that point you're a junior, or at least close to that. Mm -hmm. And so my goal is to help these students transfer better, i.e. the courses that we're actually teaching over the summertime. Again, expose them to medical students so they see people like themselves, um, and then expose them to me again for motivation. Mm -hmm. We've only been doing it, this is going to be our second summer, um, so way too early for me to say what the outcomes are going to be about getting to medical school. I can say without question that the students who were in the program last year are still very motivated to go into health. Great. And so what about the faculty side of things? The faculty side of things, um, I am just actually getting, well, actually, there's two things. So if we're talking about recruitment, what I've done um, is to try and really embed myself in our search process for faculty, um, especially for um, associate full professor leadership positions, so higher level positions, where I actually try and really sit on the search committee. For others, I actually am doing training. So in the last year about, I've trained about eight, 700 people and done about 45, 50 trainings on unconscious bias, trying to get people to understand and look, be more introspective about what their biases are and how they prevent them from actually looking at applicants based on their identities equally, mm -hmm. instead of thinking that just because someone looks a certain way, has a certain name, has a certain hue of skin, has come from a certain institution, that they are inherently better or inherently worse. Mm -hmm. And I've really been trying to work on that so that hopefully over time that our faculty becomes a lot more diverse. 
Now, let me ask you, why exactly do you think it matters, right, that in medicine we build a pipeline and sustain a sort of diverse workforce um, in terms of the, you know, the impact that that could have on um, health overall? So, so, quite frankly, society needs it, whether a majority of people realize it or not. Um, I'll even step away. I'll get to healthcare in a moment. Really, honestly, the important questions that we need to answer in society at this point, you need a diverse set of people at the table. You do not need all people, majority people, who have had a very similar life all at the table at the same time because they're not going to come to the best answers. Really, the data really shows that diversity leads to much better outcomes. So we're just talking globally. If we look at healthcare specifically, there is clear data to show that the healthcare field, physicians, nurses, and everybody else in the field, have just as much bias as the rest of society. Mm-hmm. Clear data to show that those biased doctors have an impact on their patients. Mm-hmm. And until we actually have patients, at, I'm sorry, physicians that patients can relate to better, I do not anticipate healthcare outcomes or the health of communities will change. And so that is the reason why it is important specifically in medicine to have a more diverse um, workforce because it really does impact the patient's outcomes. Right. We've seen that, for example, minority physicians are more likely to go work in either underserved or in minority communities or like sort of urban communities, right? Oh, absolutely. But what is said a lot less often, minority physicians are more likely to see white poor patients than white physicians. Mm. So minority physicians are more likely to see the economically disadvantaged and ethnic minorities and people whose English is not their first language. So many of the everyday common folk, mm-hmm. minority physicians, are much more likely to step up to the plate. I see. And that's both primary care, actually, and specialty care. If we really, if the goal truly is to improve the health of the minoritized, marginalized, and stigmatized, then we have to do something different. Now, the question is, is that society or leadership in society's real goal? Mm. Now, let me ask you, what are some obstacles that you, th- you may have faced, you know, as you're trying to build these programs to sustain increasing diversity in healthcare and the workforce overall? Well, the first obstacle is consciously or subconsciously, the people who are in healthcare already, the people who do admissions to uh, medical schools, the people who do admissions to undergraduate schools, their definition of who's worthy mm-hmm. and who's good enough. And quite honestly, a lot of the students that I'm touching, again, are public schools, not private schools, um, have not had MCAT prep courses. Matter of fact, had to work. And so even though they bring extraordinary um, life skills and experiences to the table, um, quite often they don't bring the GPA or they don't bring the quote-unquote standardized test, the MCAT score to the table that the people who actually hold the lever to open the door think are necessary. And honestly, the data would suggest that MCATs and GPAs at a point are necessary, but at the level in which more prestigious schools want them to be, they are gatekeepers. They are not, you do not necessarily need that high of a GPA or that high of an MCAT to succeed in the school. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a way to keep certain people out, whether one wants to admit that or not. 
Now, in terms of pipeline programs, what do you think makes a pipeline program successful and sustainable? Well, you actually need two components. Um, what actually starts a type pipeline program um, is that you have someone who is really dedicated and fire in the belly to actually get it started to make sure it keeps running. But sustainability, you need whatever the institutions that are involved, you need true institutional commitment, mm -hmm. institutional resources. And so unfortunately, a lot of places will start a pipeline program because there's a grant or there's some government funding. And unfortunately, as soon as that money dries up, the institution will let that program just wilter away um, without actually backfilling it um, and asking, even bothering to ask the question, what were the outcomes? Mm -hmm. And I can almost assure you there will be some positive outcomes, but um, because the outside money, the extramural money has disappeared, the institutions don't backfill it. So if you want true sustainability, yes, you need people like myself who are just absolutely dedicated to this cause, but you also need the institutions to be committed. To, to be absolutely committed. And when I say committed, I mean resources. I mean money. I mean supplies. I mean staffing. I mean literally helping the high schools that whatever whatever the um, community agency you're working with, actually helping them because they tend not to have the same amount of resources. Mm -hmm. So true resources. That's what I mean by commitment. Commitment is not, oh, what a wonderful program once a year and come to some little... Um, and give a little short speech and leave. That's not commitment. <laughs> so what are some examples of institutionally supported programs, nationally or otherwise, that you've seen sort of have the success that you're describing that is necessary for sustainability of pipelines? So probably the, 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 the programs that have the most success and have been studied the most are post-baccalaureate programs. And what I mean by the type of post-baccalaureate program I'm talking about are for GPA enhancers. Mm -hmm. So people who did their undergraduate and for whatever the reason were not able to achieve the GPA or MCATs that we all know they're capable of. And so they do a one to two year, usually upper division science intensive program to actually help them um, bring up their GPA. Structured ones also will have a coordinator that again works on time management, um, learning skills, et cetera, et cetera. The reason why I bring this up is because, again, it's an incredible example of someone whom, if you look at their undergraduate GPA, many admissions people say there is no way, there's no hope. And then just in one year, if you just look at their post-bac GPA, it can be, I mean, just light years above what their undergraduate GPA is. And so it gives you a more true view of what the potential are of some of our, our students when they're actually given an environment to thrive instead of an environment, quite frankly, to be unsuccessful, which is the environment for most of us on undergraduate campuses. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I just want to say, which we talked about earlier as to, you know, like, why is it important to have a more diverse workforce? And we talked about health care, but it goes beyond that. We need more minority leaders in our communities, period. We need more, hopefully more of us will actually live in the communities in which we were raised at, to be role models to the younger generation. We need more health care providers who have lived the lives to actually 
testify so that we develop more policies and procedures and not criminalization. Um, so having more minority physicians, yes, it does help one life at a time without question, but it really has the potential of really truly helping to move societies and communities forward also. Well, Darren, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate hearing your perspective and from your experience when it comes to building pipeline efforts in medicine. Thank you. So I had the opportunity to attend the New England Science Symposium, which is a conference at Harvard University. It takes place at the medical school, and it's an opportunity for minority and non-minority students across the country to present their research. I talked to Dr. Joan Reed, whose office puts the whole thing together. Hello, my name is Joan Reed. I'm Dean for Diversity and Community Partnership at Harvard Medical School and a professor of medicine at the medical school and a professor at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. So I've been here for two days now with the Biomedical Science Careers Program and the New England Science Symposium. Um, and I'd like to know, how long have you been doing? So the Biomedical Science Careers Program started more than 25 years ago here at Harvard Medical School started in my office here in the Minority Faculty Development Program, and then was later, later spun off and is a separate 501c3. And so it's been more than 25 years we've held our student conferences. The New England Science Symposium is newer. It's about 18 years old. And so as you've seen both programs grow over the years, what are your thoughts in terms of where it's going and sort of the impact that it's been having on the students that participate every year? The Biomedical Science Careers Program, BSCP, and New England Science Symposium, NESS, have different objectives. Biomedical Science Careers Program is more about identifying students, early professionals, trainees, fellows, who are highly motivated, who have a strong interest and passion for science in any kind of science field, but particularly STEM fields, and who have the potential and the willingness to sort of persevere in the sciences. And it's about providing mentoring, providing supports, providing information so that they can make informed decisions about school, about career paths, have an increased awareness of opportunities and funding. Um, and that's more BSCP, where students actually are assigned an advisor that can work with them. New England Science Symposium, on the other hand, is an opportunity for these students and fellows who have done stellar research to present their research. It's a time where they can be recognized for their accomplishment, for the quality of the work that they've done, the excellence that they have produced, that they can see the work that each other have done, which is uplifting, and where our judges who are scientists and researchers and faculty from multiple medical schools and institutions and industry can see the talent that's out there. All too often, when we have discussions around diversity, people will say that there's nobody in the pipeline and that there's no one there. And if we look at BSCP, the conference we had this Friday and Saturday for 1,200 students from 44 states and over 400 schools were represented, or the New England Science Symposium today where over 500 students registered from 100 schools and close to 30 states. Clearly the talent is there. 
the talent exists, it doesn't mean that we don't need to identify and nurture more talent. But it's not true that there are not individuals who are well qualified, more than well qualified, to enter our um, graduate programs and our postdoc programs and become our faculty, become our researchers, become leaders in science and medicine. And so what BSCP and New England Science Symposium are really telling us is that if you sit back and wait for people to come, you might not find them. But if you proactively look for individuals, if you let individuals know that it's a sincere looking for them, it's not just words on a piece of paper, and that you will recognize their accomplishments but also provide supports and nurturing and help them pursue whatever their career path it might be, that those individuals exist. They're, they're across the entire country and they're at all academic levels. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We're all very thankful for the opportunity that these programs are creating for all of us. Um, and I hope to continue seeing where the program goes and see it continue to grow. So after talking with Dr. Reed, I made it a point to interview at least one participant at the conference. So what's your name? Malik Jacobs. So I go to school at Cornell University. I'm a junior studying biology with a minor in psychology um, and a concentration in neuroscience. Nice. And what type of research did you present here at this conference? So I did research on cancer biology last summer at Wild Cornell. We used a chemical genetics approach to study circulating tumor cells of zebrafish melanoma cells. And what do you want to do when you grow up? Uh, hopefully pediatric neurosurgery. Now tell me, how has this conference helped you in terms of achieving your ultimate goal of becoming a neurosurgeon? So this conference has actually helped me uh, quite a lot being able to network with people, uh, postdocs, postbacs. They just motivate me to see where I want to be. Being able to present in front of a large crowd, getting different perspectives, getting different um, uh, critiques. That's great. So I was very delighted to talk to Malik and hear about his ambition, but also really excited that programs like the New England Science Symposium exist to expose individuals like him to the breadth of opportunities that can be seized out there. And it just goes to show that the pipeline is there and that we need to make stronger and larger efforts in medicine in order for there to be room for everyone at the table. This concludes this week's episode. Thank you all for listening and stay tuned for the next one.